this place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash a check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Hello, and thank you once again for joining us on the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck, where we cover the Oregon Ducks, the Pac-12, and all the big stories from around all of college football. As always, I'm your host, Doug Scott. Justin Hopkins from Scoop Duck will be joining us later, but right now I'm joined, of course, by QB11. Andrew, how are you this morning? I am good. Just got to make myself a nice homemade breakfast uh, ready to talk some talk some duck football. It's been kind of a crazy couple of weeks. Been really busy, and uh, it's nice to finally be able to block off some time to sit down with you and Justin and talk about some fun stuff. Yeah, it's been uh, our last podcast came out on signing day on the first, and uh, now we're here on the sixteenth. And I know I'm getting a lot of angry DMs from thirsty listeners waiting to hear from us. So here we are. Yeah, Back and again, again guys, we're. we're we're, we finally have figured out like a system like with three people and then like my work schedule being very inconsistent um, and everything that Justin's got going on. It's it's been tough to figure out a time for all three of us consistently to get together. And I think we got that ironed out this morning and we're just going to block time off to make it all work. So um, hopefully we're not we're going to have uninterrupted once a week on Tuesdays. Um, going forward here until we get closer to the season or maybe even during spring ball we can up our cadence to twice a week uh well we're just gonna have to wait and see how it all plays out here over the coming weeks uh in the lead up to spring yeah and as we as we get closer and closer to spring ball obviously the content's going to pick up a little bit more and we're certainly in a slower time period since signing day um you know that being said once justin joins us here in a little bit we'll we'll talk about the new align coach elite terry We'll talk a little bit about the Treshawn Holden situation and maybe get into some, you know, Pac-12 media deals, realignment, those kind of conversations, which have never really gone away or kind of always swirling. There's been some, wouldn't say news necessarily, but there's been a lot of reporting and rumors going on along along those fronts that we could dive into at the end of the show, you know, as time permits. But, uh, you know, one of the things that QB and I wanted to start talking about here as we start to approach spring ball is kind of breaking down the roster and the rooms, uh, the different position groups and kind of where they stand as we head into spring ball and, and what maybe we're looking to see, you know, through spring from those different rooms. And so I think today we wanted to start with linebackers QB and, you know, that room, you know, looking only at the inside linebackers, not the edges and outside linebackers, which we'll cover in a different podcast. You know, I've, I've got seven players in that room right now. 
actually eight, sorry, eight players, because Jamal Hill has joined the linebacker room, which I did confirm uh, at the signing day event with several players who confirmed that he's in the linebacker room at, at this moment in time. So you've got Jamal Hill, you've got Keith Brown, you've got Jeffrey Bassa. You know, all three of those guys are returning players who played a lot of snaps uh, last year. Obviously, Hill not at linebacker, but Brown and Bossa at linebacker. And then other returners are the, the two freshmen from last year, Devin Jackson and Harrison Taggart, who really didn't play much at all throughout the season. I think I think one of them got some run in the, in the bowl game, Taggart, I believe. And then you've got the transfer from Iowa, Justin Jacobs, who figures to be a, a factor in this room. Uh, and then the transfer from Arizona State, Connor Sowell. And then, of course, the, the the incoming freshman, Jerry Mixon. So that's the eight players in the room. And, you know, kind of where do you want to start with this QB? Talking well, about? I think the most intriguing storyline is the Jamal Hill move. Um, and the way I look at this is there's been a lot of players. Now, this is – I'm not comparing him to any of these players, obviously. We haven't seen him play linebacker. But there's been uh, – of late in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of players who were good – box safeties in, in at the college level who transition to be more nickel linebackers um, as they move up to the NFL, like players like Dion Buchanan, um, Shaq Thompson come to mind as guys who were they're maybe a little undersized to play linebacker, but they run really well and they cover better than a linebacker would, uh, but they don't have the range um, or the coverage ability to really play safety. Um, and again, I'm not saying that Jamal Hill is going to go to the NFL as a linebacker, or that he's even remotely comparable to those guys as athletes, but just at Oregon, at least he's been, he's been dependable at the linebacker at the safety position. Um, but he's not somebody that's going to make a, like a plus play, like a positive play. Um, I think that what you're hoping for with him at safety is a guy um, who can give you neutral play, just doing his job, keeping his area of the field covered, but he's not going to go do something outside of that, uh, to generate like a turnover or an explosion play uh, defensively. And I think that moving him up closer to the box in a situation where he doesn't have to um, cover as much ground and process as much, as much information um, in real time, like when you're playing safety, is going to be greatly beneficial. Yeah, I think if you, as Duck fans, if you look back to that, Pac-12 title game in the COVID year against USC down down there in the Coliseum. You know, he had two interceptions that game, and that was kind of his breakout performance. You know, before that, he you know was kind of a backup or spot player, and you know, maybe someone that wasn't a high-profile player. And then all of a sudden, he had those two turnovers on the big stage. And going into the next season, everyone was like, "Oh, Jamal Hill's you know going to be a real factor on the defense." And I think you know he was he was the starting nickel for a lot of that. 21 season and then obviously you know moved back to uh to the safety for 22 and any he, he really has never like built upon that that pac 12 title game performance from from two years ago right he's like you said he's been solid he's been dependable but he's not been a a breakout like star in the back end of the defense well there are the two things that i'd like to say because i would actually like to amend something i said a little bit earlier like it's not that you don't have to process as much information in real time at linebacker because in fact there's sometimes it's more messy there's more bodies his problem has never been getting to the right spot his problem is he just lacks a little bit of the flexibility to stay in phase uh in transition of routes so when he gets stuck in man coverage because even if you're playing safety and you have to and you're playing zone you have to carry somebody. So if someone comes into your area and presses vertical, 
you got to go with him. Now he's, he has good, good linear speed and sometimes he can make up for it, but ultimately he has, he struggles to stay with guys in transition. And so I think of another player at Oregon for uh, Oregon fans that would remember is Eddie Pleasant had a very similar situation and similar limitations physically made the move to linebacker and was fantastic at linebacker for the ducks in route to that 2010 national title game. Um, and so if you're, if you're looking for like an optimistic, um, like what is the upside, what is the potential impact value that Jamal Hill adds a linebacker? I think it'd be something similar to Eddie Pleasant because all of his interceptions at Oregon have come in the flats in, in underneath zones. And I think that that's where he's most, I think that's where he's most complimentary to the defense. And so just moving him up a level, playing him at linebacker. And I think that he's primarily going to play in third down situations, nickel, maybe some dime where we're trying to get smaller, faster um, is going to be a good thing. Cause he's been a really dependable tackler. Uh, he generally takes good angles and his speed for a linebacker is very good. Whereas at safety, it's, it's fine, but it's definitely not um, exceptional. So maybe this is a little premature as we haven't talked through the rest of the players yet in the room, but, you know, do you see him as someone who could enter that linebacker room and buy for a starting job or, or be in the heavy rotation, or is it more of maybe there's too much ground to make up and he's a depth piece there? I mean, kind of, where do you see, where do you see Hill fitting in with that group? That's tough to say right now. Like I'd like to like revisit just so you guys know, too, we plan to revisit all of this after the spring uh, going into fall camp when we have a better idea of kind of how guys look at certain spots. Uh, but it's tough to say definitively right now how he's going to fit into that room. I think if you're just looking at his skill set, the easiest projection to make is that he's going to play a lot in substitution packages when we're trying to get lighter against like down and distance and teams that play a lot of 10 personnel. Um I don't know that he's going to see as much run um, in base downs just due to his size. Uh, and and we'll have to wait and see. And maybe he is able to put on substantial mass this offseason and he's able to play in the box more consistently. But right now, I think the easier projection is that he's going to be more of a rotational sub, sub package player. Yeah, that that kind of makes sense. I mean, it, do you see him? I mean, obviously, another example. You know, Jeffrey Boss is a, a, a guy who came into Oregon, you know, out of high school as a safety commit, you know, was converted to linebacker his freshman year. Uh, you know, at least partly at the time, we thought due to necessity because the room was so thin and had a lot of injuries, but he stayed there now over the course of two seasons. Do you see Hill as comparable to Bossa from a, like, skill set and size and build perspective, or are there what are the differences there? Um, I think Bass is naturally a little thicker. I don't know that like like Bass is pretty well proportioned from head to toe. I don't know that um, Hill is going to be able to carry the mass below the belt as well as Bassett does, which might make it harder for him to project as like an every down take on player. Because um, as much as we like to prevent our linebackers from having to play take on and playoff blocks, it's almost impossible to stop it uh, from a, a, happening on occasion. Yeah, so with Hill and Bassa, I think that they are different but similar, obviously. Like, Bassa was initially recruited to play kind of like a nickel safety slash linebacker, and I think he's grown into linebacker partially by necessity. But uh, And maybe he was a little lighter than you would have preferred last year. 
I just think that overall, because of how much younger he is and the fact that Bass is already bigger, Bass's long-term frame projection is better to play linebacker on an every-down basis than Hills is, at least currently. Again, we'll see what his body looks like. Maybe he just blows up um, during the spring and the summer, and he's like 225 pounds by the time the fall rolls around. Uh, but uh, first of all, how is that going to affect his movement? And second of all, like given the role that we need Hill to play, is that what is actually best for the both the athlete and the team? Um, so I, I understand that fans are going to make that comparison. I just don't know. I don't know if it's a good comparison to make at this point because I, I expect them to play fundamentally different roles. Yeah, let's turn let's turn a little bit to to Keith Brown. So obviously he's he's a, a will be a third year player this year as well. Um, didn't played sparingly as a true freshman um, this past year. I think his snap count was significantly higher. And I'm looking it up, but it certainly grew throughout the course of the season. And, and obviously, he he played, you know, the bulk of the game in the bowl game with with Sewell being out and and um, you know Flo having moved on. And and he actually acquitted himself pretty well in that game. You know, where do you see him fitting in next year? Is he a starter? You know, certainly he's in the heavy rotation, I would imagine, at this point. Do you, do you see him as being a starter and, and maybe I would, an impact guy? Yeah, I think to me he's the, my favorite to start at one of the two spots. I don't know which one. Um, but talk about, like, when you talk about off-season transformations and, and physical growth, I think if you look at him as a freshman to it, him as a sophomore last year, he made possibly the biggest jump on the team. Um, he was just moving so much more freely. He was way more fluid. He was carrying running backs downfield on wheel routes and covering them well. His sideline to sideline was better. He he was more fluid in space when he had to fit and make tackles in the open field. Like I, I could not have been more impressed with the jump that Brown made from his freshman to his sophomore year. And I think now going into his junior year, we can expect something similar. Um, not necessarily physically, because I think he will improve physically, but I don't know that he will make the jump he made last year. But as a player, like if you look at how he played in the bowl game and down the stretch, he was really starting to emerge as a, as a playmaker for this defense. And I think he's a player that I have really high hopes for going into the 2023 season as someone who can I- improve our linebacker play year over year. Um, and so I'm, that's a player that I'm really, really excited about. Yeah, and I think – you know, I'm wondering if if that a lot of that improvement in his kind of movement and speed and flexibility and everything. I mean, some of that might be attributable to the change in the philosophies of the the former strength and conditioning staff and the current strength and conditioning staff, because it seemed like, you know, he was kind of bulky and stiff. You know, his freshman year, and he seemed a lot more fluid this la- this last year. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's a mixture of that, and then you also like coming into his freshman year, he was coming off of COVID in the state of Oregon where things were really locked down. He wasn't able to train as much. I think that that also can be attributed to some of his maybe lack in flexibility and his, he he wasn't as fluid as um, maybe we would have hoped. And then last year he just looks like a completely different athlete. He was obviously more trim, um, but he, he he genuinely just moved like a completely different player. And uh, that got me really excited about him. And I think he's a guy, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this, but I think he's a guy that, factors into the starting rotation in a major way. And I don't think he's somebody that you have to take out of the game in sub packages. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of ever since the bowl game in the off season and, and, you know, obviously flow transferring and, and obviously he played more snaps than flow did last year. Anyway, I think that's the, you know, one of the things we've talked about this before, right. Is, is it's been, it's been very overstated 
you know, how much flow actually played, uh, which was not a lot, especially in the, in the back half of the year. Um, and so Brown actually outsnapped him last year as it is, but with, with him moving on and Sewell moving on to the draft and then the play in the bowl game, I've just had, I've had Keith like as a, I wouldn't even say penciled in, like in my mind, he's, he's one of the starters uh, until proven otherwise. Uh, I just don't see, you can't, you can't have Bass and Hill, right? There's not enough, you need more pop. You know, you need somebody who can bring a little bit more lumber, uh, you know, into the box. And I think Keith is that guy, you know, Justin Jacobs, obviously is going to factor in. We can talk about him next as well. Right. But, you know, I think you're, I think Keith is a starter, right? I'd be shocked if he, if he's not in that spot, you know, come fall. Yeah, I would be too. And I think that some of the criticism of Jeffrey Bassa um, coming out of last season was a little bit unfair. Like, yeah, at times he did get ran over, but he was also a true sophomore playing linebacker for basically the second year, his first full year, right? Because he had spent all fall camp, all spring the year before at safety. Um, and it wasn't until like week six that he actually moved to linebacker as a freshman. So he had one full year at linebacker. And, and while he wasn't, consistently finishing because I think there was some size and strength that still needed to be acquired for him to be a really consistent finisher as a tackler. He was by far our most consistent player getting to the right spot. Um, and so like with another year of growth from him, I think he certainly factors in to this competition to start inside linebacker along with the two transfers and Jamal Hill. Yeah. It's really one of the more, interesting rooms to watch play out because i think if you look across the other rooms across the roster you have you have a clear hierarchy of of starters and playing times at a lot of positions right i think you know you look at receiver and, and running back and um offensive line defensive line you know dbs like it's you have a, i think a much more clear picture to me it's like the linebacker room is very interesting because you have you know like you said four four to five guys who could all be starting in theory, right? And maybe, maybe four, you know, you got Brown, you got Bossa who started, you know, started a lot the last two years, Brown, Bossa has, you got Brown who we just talked about, you know, you've got Justin Jacobs coming in and, and Soel coming in from Arizona state. And those are all guys that I wouldn't be shocked if they're in the starting lineup in the season, when the season starts. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Jacobs is a good place to go next. Like, as somebody who's coming in from Iowa, where he was a starter at the beginning of the season prior to his season-ending injury, um, and the year before he was the third linebacker in a really talented group of, of NFL-quality guys. Um, and so I think that Jacobs isn't coming to Oregon to not play a lot. Um, and so I would expect that whether he's starting, which I think is very – if I had to guess, I think that Brown – and Bassa will compete for one spot and Jacobs will start in the other. Um, but I, I think that uh, adding Jacobs to this equation as like someone who coming out of high school, he was only 200 pounds and he was six, four and he was a guy that ran really well and had really good movement. And that shows up um, when he's playing in coverage. Like I watched all of his film at Iowa and he's going to step on the, in, into Oregon as probably our best coverage linebacker. Um, but now he's 240 pounds and he can take on and play in the box. And so I think that he adds a dynamic where like he, he can play on every down and he gives you a, a good solid, like well-formed rounded balanced player um, that like coming from Iowa and playing in that scheme and being a starter in that scheme, he's going to be really gap disciplined. He's going to get to where he's supposed to be and he's going to finish when he gets there. 
Um, and I think that that level of dependability is something that Oregon's lacked at linebacker. And I think ultimately that's going to separate him from the rest of the room, and he's going to end up being a starter at the, at the inside linebacker position. But I also think that it's going to be a healthy rotation depending on down and distance, personnel packages, because there's substantial depth here of players that I think that can contribute, um, which is, again, a really nice change um, after the last couple of years where it's like Sewell's played like 100% of the snaps, and then there's been kind of a revolving door next to him and just a lot of general inconsistency, even including Sewell. So uh, I think adding Jacobs and even Connor Sowell, who does not get talked about very much, but is someone that like, I'm totally fine being alone on an island being really excited about. You know, it's interesting you said you said you had Jacobs kind of penned in at one spot and Brown or Boss at the other. And I've kind of maybe I've been off base on this, but I've kind of been looking at it as more Brown in one spot and Bossa versus J- Jacobs for the other. Cause I, I guess I've always considered that I don't think Brown and Bossa play the same sub position, if you will, at inside linebacker, but maybe, maybe I'm just way off base on that one. Well, I mean, I don't think it's that you're off base. I just think that, I think that both Brown and Bossa run a little bit better than Jacobs. And so I think that you're going to want to compliment Jacobs with someone that runs really well. Um, and that's why I kind of see them competing. I, th- I think, Largely, the inside linebacker positions are interchangeable. Um, and I think that Jacobs, being a really experienced player, is probably going to step into Sewell's role, which is very communication heavy. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Maybe that's Brown. And then and then Bassett and Jacobs are competing for the other spot. I mean, at the end of the day, all of these guys are going to play, and they're going to play a lot of snaps because guys get banged up. Guys have to come out. Guys have to sub. We're going to play four to five. I think we're going to play about five linebackers maybe more if, if some of these young guys are in reps um, in, in like regular time. Yeah. And I think that kind of gets to the next, to the next set of players here, right? We've talked about Brown. We've talked about Hill. We've talked about Bossa. We've talked about Jacobs. Um, you know, we touched on Sowell a little bit coming out from Arizona state, but you know, where does that leave some of the younger guys in the room? Obviously I'm just going to assume Jerry Mixon is, is, you know, incoming freshman, uh, he's going to redshirt, you know, probably not a factor in the rotation. Um, and then, but then we, you got last year's freshman, Devin Jackson and Harrison Taggart. And do you see where do you see that either one of them with the chance to break through into that four or five? Rotation? I think it's going to be really tough to break into that top five. Um, maybe if, if one did, I would, I would guess Jackson. I think he's just a little bit more physically developed at this point. He's a little bigger. Uh, but I really, I think that they're going to be guys that maybe play in more garbage time situations, which, will be great to have some young guys coming through the pipe that aren't forced to play early. Um, but I wouldn't sleep on Jerry Mixon. I know he's a true freshman, but I really like his physical skill set. Um, and depending on, I know, I don't think he's going to be here for the spring, but depending on how he comes in in the fall, I think athletically he's pretty unique. And I think he'll be able to earn some reps on special teams, possibly um, in, in similar roles to what Taggart and, and uh, Jackson did a year ago. Uh, but overall, I, I think that, this rotation in primary downs and in regular time is going to come down to that top five. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that. And, and it'll be the, I think this to me is one of the position groups that is so critical to determining how much success Oregon has in the 2023 season. I know edge rushing and, defensive back play have taken a lot of the conversation among the Oregon fan base and pundits around, you know, what needs to happen in, in 2023. And I don't disagree that both of those 
I would I'll say that I don't think the corners were were a problem last year. I think safeties was a bigger problem, and obviously, you know, getting a pass rush at the edge position was was probably the biggest problem. But I think I think linebacker play was an kind of an under talked about issue last year with the defense as a whole. I think oh, yeah. the lack of consistency, the lack of playmaking, I think, and it's kind of that middle tier, middle layer of the defense that kind of holds everything together. And I, do you see this position group as being capable of showing like significant improvement over what we saw on the field last year? I think so. Cause I think you just have a, a larger group of capable bodies than you did a year ago. Um, like we, there was a lot of hope for guys like Justin Flo, who have immense physical talent. Um, he's been hurt a lot, but you just really like as the season went on, it just became clear that they didn't trust him. Like his snap counts were just diminishing, and he was hardly playing at all by the end of the year. I think he played like seven snaps in the last four games combined. Um, and you need guys that get to the right spot and are instinctive and naturally know how to play the position and can play within the defense and play fast. And that just, that wasn't what we were getting from flow. And we had other guys that were banged up and Bassa wasn't finishing plays and Sewell was playing with frankly, really poor effort at times. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where I, I do think that this group can be a step forward. I don't know that this group is like an all-star group where they're just fantastic all world, but if they can just, take the next step to being consistent and being in the right spot and making the play that's in front of them, then that's an upgrade over what we had last year. Um, and I fully agree with you that it was like, we, our problems defensively were up the middle, not, not at the front line, but linebacker and safety in particular, al- along with other things. I think our set, our cornerback too was inconsistent at times, but I think that safety and linebacker were really the Achilles heels of what was a pretty poor defense um, for Oregon fan standards. Uh, any more, any more thoughts on the linebacker room and, and maybe what are we looking to see? You know, not that we get to see a lot of spring practices. I, I, you know, I think I might be able to get to one or two and, and obviously the spring game. Um, but you know, kind of what are the key things you want to focus on like, or fans maybe want to focus on, you know, in watching kind of what's happening in the spring or certainly at the spring game that might give us some insights into what to expect going into fall. Yeah, I mean, always take spring games with a grain of salt. I think we've seen lots of times where players come out and look dominant in spring games and they don't really do anything in the fall. And it's because it's like it's a half speed scrimmage, right? Like Seven McGee and DJ Johnson looked like they were going to just have unstoppable years this year. And then like Seven didn't play at all. And DJ was an inconsistent as, as at best as a pass rusher. Um, and so you're really looking for. I, to me, I'm more looking for like how guys are moving and what their bodies look like than like actual like statistics or production or or like on field play in the spring. Um, like the, I think the practices are a lot more valuable. Like Doug, I know you mentioned that you're going to be able to get to one or two practices. The actual spring game itself, it's like let's just get through this with everyone being healthy. Um, and so enjoy the atmosphere, uh, be there for recruiting purposes. Uh, but I I highly recommend against. Um, putting too much stock into like one-off performances in a spring game setting. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back. I was fortunate enough to get to go to a practice last spring and, and I certainly learned a lot more in that, in that two hours than I did, you know, watching the spring game. And, you know, I, I you know, just a, a reminder, the big, the big takeaway was the quarterback situation, right? Like it was clear, you know, if we remember, but it's hard to imagine this now, but if we remember back, 
to last spring, like there was not a lot of confidence in, in a lot of the fan base about Bo Nix. There was a lot of negativity actually about Bo Nix. And there was, you know, in theory, this quarterback, com, you know, competition and, and maybe Ty Thompson was going to be the guy and, you know, in year two and take that step. And Bo Nix was an insurance policy and, and whatnot. But, you know, going to that practice, it was clear as, as crystal to me that Bo Nix was far and away the best quarterback in the room, far and away. And, and frankly, uh, at the practice I was at, Jay Butterfield was a better quarterback than, than Ty Thompson. At least certainly he was more consistent at that practice. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, but, that's, yeah. that's the thing with these young players, right? Is that like from one day to another, like the variance in play is, is quite large. Um, and so not taking, not taking these big sweeping opinions based on a small off a of one day sample size is best because again, you might see a guy on his best day. You might see a guy on his worst day, but you won't know because that's the only sample size you have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't draw any major conclusions on the J versus tie thing based on that one practice either. And I, I didn't last, last, uh, last spring, but it was, it was one data point, right. That was telling, but the bigger thing that was telling was, was Bo Nix was definitely the guy in that room. And, and it was clear, you know, being there for that practice that, that not only in that room, but like a leader on the team and, and was going to lead the offense. And obviously he had a, he had an extremely uh, successful season for Oregon in, in year one and, and he's back again for year two. So um, shall we move on to a new topic? Absolutely. Uh, kind of a little bit of a negative one here with Treshawn Holden um, being dismissed from the team yesterday. I think he was arrested in Eugene overnight on what it would have been Monday night, a Tuesday night, Tuesday night and released the next day. No charges have been filed. There's, I don't want to get too far into this because I, I don't want to be on the police, the police uh, blotter reporting. And also like, it, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but uh, certainly if let's just leave the details out or on the side, but he was arrested. There was, he was, there was some, three charges he was arrested on. He was let go. He has no file. No charges have been filed by the district attorney yet. He hasn't been arraigned. We don't know if he will be. Um, but the dismissal from the team happened very quickly. Dan Lanning acted very quickly in dismissing Treshawn Holding from the team almost before we even got wind of the charge of the arrest happening. And so, I don't know what's going to come out of this in the coming days. Is he going to be reinstated? Is that even a possibility? Are charges eventually going to be filed? Did he do what some people are saying he did? Did he not do it? There's some conflicting reports about that. You know, I don't know. Let's just talk about the impact on the football team. So if let's assume he's off the team as of now, which has you know been announced. So let's assume that's the case and he doesn't come back. That that makes an impact on the wide receiver room. I, I think a lot of us had Holden penciled in as a starter opposite Troy Franklin on the outside um, as kind of that second starter taking the, the spot that, that Chase Coda occupied last year and Dante Thornton when Chase was out and, and kind of, I think there was a lot of hope that Holden would be a pretty significant impact player at receiver for Oregon in this upcoming season. And if he's not going to be on the team, you know, where does that leave the ducks at that second receiver starting spot and depth wise as well? Yeah, um, it's it's not an ideal situation, um, and and hopefully, like things 
work out and he's able to rejoin the team at some point. I'm not sure of the details of the situation. I've been super busy and I haven't really been following it, but I've seen there's been some discrepancy and I don't know. You just always hope for a kid like this, like this is a life changing situation for him, right? Like he's going from being able to potentially play and start for a top 10 team in the country and try to, to improve his draft stock for a potential full-time job playing football at the next level to not having anywhere to play next year, possibly depending on what the charges are. And so um, you just hope for the kid that, that what happened, it was misrepresented and he really wasn't doing something criminal or stupid. Uh, but in regards to Oregon football, um, it's, it's a tough blow. Like you brought in Holden to kind of replace Chase Coda um, and to give you a really like a big bodied, con- like really tough blocker, consistent outside receiver. And with him potentially not being on the team now, it leaves uh, uh, obviously a gap that needs to be filled. And I think that there's plenty of talent you know, on the roster to fill that gap. And I think it would possibly create opportunities for guys like Kyler Casper, Jurion Dickey, Ashton Kozart to step into larger roles. Um, but are they exactly ready to be starters at this very moment? There's really no way for us to know yet. Like we haven't even started spring ball, uh, but it would have been a lot nicer to be able to bring those guys along a little bit slower um, as in backup rotational roles. Uh, but there, there's, there's no shortage of physical talent in the room. So I would anticipate that they'll be fine, but I also wouldn't be surprised if, if this ends up being, if, if, what, if the, accused charges end up being filed and that's what happens and and he's really off the team then i think that you're going to find yourself in a position where um you're probably back in the portal looking for another receiver in the spring portal period yeah i think i think that is the question uh and and we're welcoming justin hopkins into the into the stream so justin welcome Uh, we're just talking here about treshawn holden and that situation and not so much the the legal aspects of it that are murky but more so the impact on on the receiver room and the rotation. And, you know, I, I think obviously that, that second outside receiver spot is wide open and there's guys, like you said, QB that could take that role, but they're unproven. Uh, you know, you look at Jurian Dickey as, you know, maybe you know candidate one a right there. And I think that leaves, if, if Holden remains off the team, there's only nine receivers in that room right now. And um, there's a lot of unproven guys who would need to step up. Any thoughts, yeah. Austin? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, just the the matter sucks. No matter how you how you shake it, whether he's guilty or not, you know, young young men making ill advised decisions, which we've all done here and there, maybe not to that degree, but I do appreciate the way Landing acted on it. Um, I do I, I do think that obviously we were privy to a decent amount of information. He's probably privy to a lot more, which, you know, influenced him to make that decision so quickly. Um, and without a whole heck of a lot of thought, um, you know, I guess maybe that the best thing is that it happened now, right? Not later. So you weren't counting on him, uh, maybe at some point in August or, or, you know, you're drawing out your, your, uh, you know, you're drawing out your board and you've got him in one of the spots and all of a sudden now you're going to panic and move somebody else in there. Now you've got all spring to figure it out. And you guys, you know, highlighted this. There's another, you know, spring period that you could entertain getting a transfer. Um, It's pretty obvious that Oregon has continued to recruit Gary Bryant Jr. from USC. Um, I, I, I think they would have taken him regardless of the Holden situation, but I'm not sure that Oregon is in the lead there at, at the time. So I, I would 
definitely circle that name. I would imagine with these circumstances now, maybe that leads them to kind of maybe ramp things up again on Gary Bryant Jr. Um, I don't think that they would go back into the portal just to sign a guy and have a guy that doesn't make sense. They haven't been doing that. But I would say, like you guys pointed out, if somebody jumps in this spring and certainly raises some eyebrows, now you now you maybe have a, a chance or a you know decision to make if you want to push forward there. Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity for Ted Aroa McMillan to realize that he's made a mistake and to jump into the portal and come home. Um, only only seems logical. <laughs> yeah, the, the only thing that would make sense for everybody involved. But yeah, I, I think Justin hit on something really important here too with like the timing. Like for the for the kid himself, like this is horrible. There's no good timing for a situation like this. But for the program, you're in a position where you have the ability and the flexibility to pivot still. Um, this isn't like when Jamal Hill and DJ James got in trouble like three days into fall camp and then they missed all fall camp and two weeks of the season and like they were two starting defensive backs for that 2021 team. Um, so this is a situation where thankfully there's time for Oregon to pivot and, and explore other options um, and potentially time, depending on how things play out um, for a, a player to hit the portal in the spring. So um, I, I also think that the ability to force feed reps to some of these younger guys who are early enrolling and already on campus, guys like Kyler Casper, guys like Ashton Cozart is going to be extremely valuable to them as well, just from a developmental standpoint. And maybe those guys perform so well in spring, you don't even worry about it and you just roll with what you got. Yeah, I think I, that's the, Oh, go ahead, Doug. I was just say, I think, you know, going back to the portal situation, I, I, it doesn't make sense to bring in somebody unless they're a, bonafide starter right like there's we've got plenty of unproven young guys you know sitting on the bench in that room that we can we can insert in there and take a chance on like if you can go out and get a guy that is a clear starter then fine but uh, yeah i wouldn't take a body just to take a body we you want to force wanna... feed reps to somebody we have players already we need to force feed reps yeah to. i was gonna say like you don't want to steal developmental reps from your young talented guys because you're not going to find better guys in the portal than what you already have what you really want to avoid that like so if you take someone in the portal it can't just be a body it has to be someone who is legitimately really good and a starter caliber player which is what holden was um and so we'll, we'll see what's available like there was some really good looking players um in this first portal period but I, I think it might be a little slower on that front in the second one but you never know there was a lot of coaching turnover all over the country maybe some guys shake loose at other places the ironic part and this is uh, hopefully this doesn't get taken the wrong way not by you guys but the ironic part is of everybody that Oregon took in the transfer portal not naming special teams this is probably the guy you could afford to lose the most, right? I mean, most of the defensive backs you're going to count on, whether they're, whether they're, you know, Pac-12 uh, tier one level players or not, you're going to be counting on them and they're going to be playing. I do think that Oregon's in pretty good shape in the wide receiver room minus Holden. Um, I do think that a guy like Tez Johnson's going to come in and, and really mesh well with Bo's, Bo Nix, and, and that's going to look to be a really strong pickup now, of course. And again, you've got Jurion Dickey and Ashton Cozart coming in, so no discredit to Treshawn Holden, but of the guys Oregon took in the transfer portal, this is probably the guy you could afford to lose the most if I'm putting it into somewhat of a positive light. Yeah, that I, I get what you're saying there. I, I think they're, you know, I think there's a 
well, certain lack of unproven guys in the room, but there's not a lack of talent. So I, I would agree with I would agree with your point there. Any more on this topic? No, I think we've covered it pretty good. I'll be interested to see how this all plays out over the coming days. And again, hopefully, it's a situation where like things were misreported, the kids the kids not in bad standing, and he can rejoin the team. But um, like Justin said, I would anticipate if, if Lanning is going to make such a harsh um, judgment right away that there's likely some pretty substantial evidence um, working against Holden in this case. Yeah. And it's certainly the, you know, the other part about this that doesn't pertain to Holden, it's just, it sets the precedent with the team, right? Like, you know, it's kind of a zero tolerance policy. It would appear um, from what we know. And I think that that also can set the tone for your spring and your fall with these, with these new guys and these young guys say, Hey, look, you know, I mean, of course, there's going to be varying degrees of, of punishment, but for the most part, hey, if you mess up, you know, there's going to be consequences for it. And I, and I think that that is an impo- important part of the culture that, that Lanning's trying to put in place as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, let's turn our attention to some better news. The Oregon Ducks have completed their staff hiring. Uh, I think they had three openings that have happened over the offseason. They filled the last one now with um, – with Coach Clem moving on, moving back to the NFL, the O-line position coach was open, and Oregon has hired Alik Terry to return to the Ducks and coach the offensive line. I think this one's a bit of a surprise to some people. Uh, he's certainly on the younger side, 27 years old. Uh, his resume is is not as long as maybe some would have would have wanted in this position. He spent uh, 2018 as an OC, uh, sorry, a quality control coach at Wake Forest. Uh, he spent two years at Oregon, 2019 and 2020, as a graduate assistant, um, helping with the offensive line under Mario and Coach Mar- Coach Maribel. Uh, he was the O-line coach for Hawaii for the 2021 season. And then this past year, he spent in the NFL as an assistant defensive line coach for the Minnesota Vikings. He comes back to Oregon as the new offensive line coach under Coach Dan Lanning and staff and you know, Justin, maybe we'll start with you. I mean, is there any background you can give us on kind of how the process played out and how we ended up with, with Elite Terry and how Dan determined that he was the guy for this role? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it was important. And I don't believe that Vianney, uh, Talamavau, and Elite Terry were the only two guys that Dan Lanning interviewed. Um, in fact, I'm certain they're not. But I think that there was a connection there to both because of their uh, relationships already with some of the existing uh, players on the team, uh, you know, with Vianney, a little bit more of the knowledge of what Clem was doing at Oregon. Um, I think, you know, Alik might not be quite as, you know, caught up on, on those particular things, but can get there. Both were young, both are up and coming. I think it just made for a little bit more of a seamless transfer in than, a lot of the op- other options out there. And I think, you know, if you, if you do branch out, uh, it's kind of like we were just talking about with the transfer portal, right? You know, you, you're not going to just take a body. And I think if you're Dan Lanning and you decide to kind of branch away from that kind of being familiar type of background, it, it better be a home run, right? It better be the guy, you know, just kind of a, a no miss kind of guy. And my, my guess is that maybe he did kind of, you know, dabble out there a little bit and really didn't feel like that that option was out there so uh instead probably opted for what he felt i'm going to say what he felt was the better of the two 
probably between Vianney and Alik, and I would wager it was probably close. But, um, I mean, the guy has been on some of the up-and-coming lists with 24-7 Sports and other networks, you know, the top under 30 type assistants. You know, I'm sure he learned a lot in the NFL as well. And I, I people kind of point at, like, hey, he was a defensive line coach last year. Well, that's actually a good thing, right? I mean, he's going to kind of know what those guys are doing on that side of the ball and, of course, be able to teach his guys how to combat those things that a defensive lineman is going to throw at it. So I, th- I see that as nothing but a positive um, and again, and I know, I know QB will probably highlight on this a little bit more than myself, but you know, Dan Lanning really shows that he likes to hire the young up and coming guys. And this really fits into that mold of, of his hiring so far. Yeah. Uh, this hire, like, I didn't know who it was going to be, um, just speaking, speaking plainly, but this hire is like the least surprising thing ever to me. Like when I think we talked about this on our last podcast and I was like, all right, well, this is the buy box I expect. And maybe it wasn't on the podcast. It was just a conversation I had with Doug. Like, this is the buy box I expect. Like, if we could do it, run a query of all coaches in the NFL and college who are under the age of 35, who have had three or more jobs in the last five years, who are very clearly rapidly ascending and showing a lot of talent, and then also have really charismatic personalities for recruiting, it's gonna, it's probably going to get pump out like five to seven names, and we're going to hire somebody off that list. And that's exactly what a league Terry is, right? Like he's, he's 27 years old. Um, he's, he's been at four different places, I believe in the last five years, he's been really rapidly ascending the coaching ranks, um, has NFL experience now giving him some additional credibility. I know it was on the defensive side of the ball, but I think to me that just gives like, it, they don't hire you in the NFL because you're a good recruiter. So being hired as an assistant in the NFL and being around high level defensive line coaching, like he was, um, I think only amplifies his knowledge of the front seven, how, how the game is played up there. Uh, and to me, it just kind of reinforces like what this hire is. Now, I don't, there's a lot of uncertainty about this hire. Obviously, we don't have a huge track record of him recruiting and developing offensive lines. But given what Lanning has focused on and the results that that focus has produced in a short amount of time um, with hiring coaches, I I'm fully going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like think back to last year. Um, he brings in coach Pallage with a pretty short resume who was the safeties coach at Baylor. Uh, coach Pallage is now the the defensive coordinator at Baylor. He brings in Dillingham who has had, who had, had at that point zero seasons as the actual primary play caller as an offensive coordinator. Um, and a lot of people thought was a big risk. Dilly is now the, the youngest head coach in the power five. <laughs> He brings in Adrian Clem, who a lot of people had all these opinions about not being a very good coach. Well, like surprise, surprise, everybody. You don't get hired by Bill Belichick to coach offensive line if you aren't a good football coach because recruiting doesn't matter a lick in the NFL. So I, I think that at this point, looking at the hires of Stein, Hampton, and Terry, there's a very clear buy box with Lanning when it comes to hiring assistant coaches. And he is opting to pl- take the upside play with young guys who have a lot of energy, who are, are are quickly rising the ranks and have substantial potential, overtaking the known commodity of a guy with a mile-long resume who we know is an average recruiter or we know is only adequate at this part or that part of the job. Um, and he's choosing to go the up-and-coming route and to develop coaches under in his staff. And to me, that's the higher upside play, which is why it makes me excited. So um, I, I had the opportunity to meet Coach Terry at a clinic in, in Oregon uh, in 20, like tail end of 2019. 
Um, and it was a really short conversation. I didn't think anything of it. I never thought he was going to be our offensive line coach right away, but he is a really charismatic, like easy to talk to guy. Like you could see how he would really connect with players um, as he obviously has given the, the comments by some of the former players and current players about, uh, about coach Terry. And uh, the, the last thing I want to add on this is that Mario Cristobal, um, we, we might think he's really good at some things and really bad at others. One thing him and coach Mirabal are really good at is coaching offensive linemen. Uh, and the fact that they brought him in to their staff um, and that he has the, the continued relationship with those two to this day kind of speaks volumes about the type of work ethic he has and the kind of coach he is. Um, and this kind of brings on a question is like, okay, well, this is a guy that has spent some time with Mirabal and Cristobal. Are we going to go back to, the double under technique, or are we going to stick with what Clem had started to coach the guys up on last year uh, with, with quick shoot of the hands inside. So it's going to be interesting to see from a technical standpoint, uh, which, which like from an ideological standpoint, which tree he falls under. Uh, But I think that if you're going to, if you're going to keep anything from the Mario Cristobal era, keeping the, the offensive line development um, is, is definitely a good thing. Yeah, I, I kind of had this theory that I've been working on with this round of hires that we've made this, you know, this uh, this cycle, right, compared to last cycle. And, and maybe it's just coincidence and maybe I'm drawing conclusions, you know, out of nothing. But, you know, look at what we did in, in Dan's, you know, when Dan came over and his first hiring, filling out his staff, right? Obviously, he, he had a lot of guys that were known known pieces to him that he wanted to hire. Like Coach Dillingham was was never not going to be the OC uh, and a couple other hires that he had connections with Powledge and some others. Right. And then, you know, as it kind of got down to filling out those last few spots, you know, it was, I'm going to go out and get a really big name with a really big reputation, um, you know, and, and, and maybe an older, longer resume. And we're going to pay a lot of money for that, that coach and, and maybe kind of buy some, credibility, if you will, you know, and you think about guys like Adrian Clem, you think about guys like Tosh Lupoy, right? You brought them back from the NFL, um, you know, previously had been in college, right? But they're big names, they're big, big salaries, and they're, you know, kind of known quantities that buy you some credibility as a first year head coach. But then now, as you're looking in the second round of hires, what I'm seeing is more of Dan kind of doubling down on his philosophy that he had with many of his other hires in the first go around, which is, I'm going to get, you know, not to say that those guys, those other coaches weren't his guys, right? But I'm going to get my guys that are young and hungry and that are going to build out like a culture of our staff that I want the staff to be going forward, right? And so you look at coaches like, um, you know, kind of mirror it on what he did with Lachlan, right? Like if we go back a year, like there were the fans were were like livid almost that we hired coach Carlos Lachlan to coach running backs. And they're like, you know, the, the, the narratives were, well, we ran out of money in our system pool and we had to go cheap. You know, why are we reaching for this guy? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Coach Lachlan was a home run hire, um, you know, so far. And, and so I think what you're seeing here is more of that mold, right? I'm going to go out and hire a guy like Alik Terry, you know, who's young and hungry and upcoming and, and, you know, potentially fills in a fills in the staff in a way like Coach Lachlan did at the running back position. Or I'm going to do the same thing with um, 
you know, Co- Coach Hampton's a little bit different. He's got a little bit more experience as well, but obviously a sitting DC in the Power Five, you know, coming over at safety's coach, which is G5. a big deal. Yeah, sorry, G five. Yeah, sorry. That's, um, you know, which is a which is a, you know nice to have that experience on the staff as well. And then and then Will Stein is another one, right? You know, young, up and coming. Um, you know, kind of innovative, you know, very similar model to Coach Dillingham, right? And so I, I'm seeing that pattern this this go around and where I think the other things that are important is having kind of staff, you know, unity of vision, unity, unity of of culture, you know, whatever, right? They're they're all rowing the boat in the same direction. And I'm not saying that wasn't the case with the old staff, but it seems clear to me that that's something that Dan values and he wants a staff that's tight-knit and all working together and maybe all on a similar career or more of them on a similar career trajectory uh versus kind of a, a collection of of all-stars if you will and and then i think i'll touch on one other point here that i think is immensely important for oregon um you know as an oregon fan and watching our coaching changes over the last seven years you know we need more continuity um, season to season to season. We don't need to go back to what happened, you know, you know, prior to 2015 when you had guys who stayed here for 20 years and the whole staff was together forever. Like, I'm not saying that, but I, I desperately think we need to have a better balance of, of, you know, we get two to three to four years out of a guy before he moves on to his next job, right? Like we got to move it from one to two years to two to four years, just so we get some better continuity season to season to season. And I think these moves are are guys who, like Alik Terry, Will Stein, uh, are guys who should be here two to three seasons at a minimum. And I think that's important for this program in the current state that it's in. Yeah, I I agree somewhat, but I, I do think that it's, I mean, my expectations are that if this team's winning like it needs to be, there's probably going to be one to three coaches every year moving on and for different reasons, whether they're going to, you know, moving up the ladder or, or, you know, going to the NFL or whatever the case might be. Um, So I guess I kind of considered this off cycle, what I would expect to be kind of par for the course. You know, you you elevated an offensive coordinator to a head coach, you elevated a a secondary position coach. That was one thing I think Mario Cristobal was really clear about is like, Hey, if my guys are getting promotions and, and, and their, their next job is a promotion from this job, I'm going to be all for it. And, you know, I think coaches tend to kind of really look at like, why are you taking a lateral job? Why are you taking, you know what I mean? That's, that's when I, I think they look at it that way, but I am with you, Doug. It, it would be nice to see, you know, uh, 90% of a staff remain together for, you know, two, maybe three years at most, um, that's going to be really difficult. But I think more important will be the coordinator position. If you can retain quality coordinators for, you know, a two to three year span. And, and like you said, I think Will Stein should do that. This is a guy that's, you know, coming up from G5 into a, a major uh, position, his first offensive coordinator position in the Pac-12 at a P5 level. So you would have to think that folks might want to give him a year or two to kind of feel him out and see if he's really the guy. But um, I think if he does well enough at Oregon, he's going to get a pay bump and it's going to make it really hard for other teams to, to pry him away for a lateral lateral move. So hopefully that's the case. Um, oh, I'm yeah, not really, I just... 
I'm not worried about Oregon losing guys to lateral moves. Like that's not what's been happening. Guys have been getting promoted, and that and to me that's a sign of good hiring, right? Like if you're if you're losing guys who are position coaches to coordinators and coordinators to head coaches, and and like 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 for a guy like Clem, like if, if Bill Belichick calls you, who's the the greatest football coach of all time, and asks you to be his offensive line coach, and you don't have to recruit, and you get to have a lot more time off with your family, then it's a no brainer, right? Um, and so I, I don't, I don't buy the idea that like, like the, I, I think that continuity is good as long as it's good continuity, right? Like right. Right. Continuity for the sake of continuity doesn't do anything. Yeah. I and, I, and I'm not advocating for that to be clear. I just think like, if we have to get a new offensive line coach every year, like that's not good. No, that's not ideal. And I don't think, right. I think that part of the reason that you make these younger, more, more upside uh, oriented hires is. Like you're not going to make a 27 year old guy the offensive coordinator, or, or, or after one year as a position coach, or you're not going to make a 32 year old guy a head coach after one year as a coordinator. Actually, never mind. Arizona State just did that, but but that you, uh, yeah yeah. If Will Stein gets a head coaching Power Five head coaching job opportunity, like uh, what the hell? I mean, obviously he's got to take it, and you know, but I, it seems unlikely. Yeah, but you get what I'm the the point I'm making here is that like. These hires are, I think, are in line with the point you're making, Doug, is that they are going to produce some level of, of, of stability that didn't exist with the last staff. But I think that the last staff had to be constructed the way it was for the time. And this staff, I think, because we've had a really solid, a really good year, we recruited a really good recruiting class. Dan has proved himself to, at this point to where now he gets to go get the staff that is going to be the Oregon staff, I think, for the longer term. Um, and I, I think that's the point that you were making, and I agree with that point. Yeah, I think, I think though, I don't expect there to be, like, no turnover, right? I, I think, Justin, I think you're absolutely right. I, there, I expect there to be one to three positions turnover every year. I just think... And if you look at an individual position, if you can get two to three years out of a coach, out of position, I think that's what you need. And then that will get you to the point where you're turning over two spots every year, but at least like, okay, my running back coach is here for four years and then he gets a promotion. My wide receiver right. coach is here for four years and he gets right. Or versus if you're constantly, if we're out there instead of doing what we just did, right. And and some of the, some of the people, some of the fans and the fan base have been advocating for, well, we should have gone and thrown big money to attract you know, a superstar who's proven at some other school and, and poach them for a lateral move to come to Oregon. Yeah, we could have done that potentially, but then where does that leave you when that guy is getting a, a promotion offered next year, right? You're right back to where you started. And so I, I think, again, maybe I'm off base, but I think the philosophy of, of growing younger talent, I think makes a lot of sense for where we're at yeah. right now. Versus the retreads, right? The retread hires can be just as just as risky as the young up and coming guy and i think maybe even to your point there was a lot of turnover on mario Cristobal's staff but if we kind of go back there was a lot of lateral move movement from that staff you know you had a like a jovan book knight that left and took a wide receiver job you had a court dennison that left and took a linebacker job keith hayward left and took a you know basically a linebacker job at cal there was a lot of lateral movement uh, off the top of my head, I think Marcus Arroyo was kind of one of the only ones. And yeah. well, and to a degree, I guess, if you want Joe Moorhead, but you know, more times than not, those guys were moving laterally, which means that, you know, either they didn't come and do an excellent job or, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the, the hiring process didn't go as, as well as planned. So I think, you know, as we can see so far, 
from at least from the one year with Lanning, you know, his hires, these these guys that all left all took you yeah. know promotions. Yeah. And, so that's and, bad luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's but, just bad luck. But, right? I, yeah. but I think you can help you can help create better luck by taking the approach that I think you know Lanning is taking in this go around versus yeah, we can go out and hire a guy who's got a 20 year long resume coaching offensive line, but you know, a, is he settled and kind of like on cruise control in his career trajectory at which maybe isn't what you want. Or is he a guy that's like waiting to get an OC job, you know, and that could happen next year. And now you're, you're back to square one again. And I, I think, you know, go back to Mario, he lost five of his 10 assistants after one year and every single one of them was a lateral job or worse. Yeah. That, I'm talking about in Miami right now. Like that's what just happened right. to him in Miami, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we expect that with the way he works his staffs, right? Like that's just that's the cost of doing business with Mario as your head coach. Whereas I think I'll take I'll take like what is happening right now with Oregon staff. When you have turnover like this, yeah, it sucks. Like I love Coach Pallage. Like I would have loved for Coach Pallage to be our next defensive coordinator. And hell, you never know if Ta- if Tosh moves on in a year or two. Pallage might end up as our next defensive coordinator. Um, but you bring in a guy like Coach Hampton to replace him, and it's like you look at Hampton's resume, and Hampton is like one of the fastest risers in the game right now. Um, yeah. And so it's like I, I don't know. I just I think that to me personally, Lanning has definitely earned the benefit of the doubt. Like he's he's batted a hundred on his hire so far. Like the only hire that like I would have any questions about is Tosh. And at the time of the hire, I would have thought that Tosh was like the home run of the entire group, right? We all did. Yeah, we all did. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like, so yeah, like possibly one miss, but when you have three coaches promoted in a year, three, and and, and Lachlan, who's the guy who – who was kind of your gamble of last class is the best is the best running back coach the the program's ever had other than Gary Campbell like that's a pretty damn good track record that I that I'm okay with with getting on board with um and again just it's it doesn't seem like he's just throwing darts at a board to make these hires like there is there is a strategy behind it and there is real uh, there's a real like buy box there's a real criteria that each of these guys are fitting it, it's it doesn't just seem like he's like doesn't know what he's doing and it's random no, hundred percent. And it, you know, what's crazy to think about is maybe Oregon is like one of the unluckiest programs in terms of, of, of just like the coaching carousel, because, you know, if you think about it at the time, everybody needs to slow their roll and say at the time, at the time, you know, Willie Taggart wasn't really going to leave Oregon for any job, but FSU. And it opens up after like, what was it? 30 years for the first time, like just bad circumstance, bad luck. And, and you think about Mario Cristobal, there was really only one job he was going to leave Oregon for. Guess what? It opened up. And, you know, the last one here that I'll, is Kenny Dillingham. There's probably not another program in the country that would have hired Kenny Dillingham to be their head coach other than ASU at this particular juncture. Uh, at least at the at the p5 level so again just all those all those kind of bad circumstances bad luck kind of surround oregon and it is what it is but yeah you know dan lanning's just he's crushing it as far as coaching hires go it's pretty it's pretty impressive really yeah it is and that's why like i if i have zero questions about stein or hampton and if if i have if I, if there's some uncertainty around one of the coaches he hires like again i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt um, the, he has done nothing to prove that he doesn't know what he's doing. I always just find it like kind of silly and funny when people are like, 
this is a terrible hire. It's an F like, it's, you know, and they're like, you know, panning the hire and make, like, what evidence do you have to base that kind of knee jerk reaction on as a fan? Right. Or, or conversely to say it's a home run hire. Like, like we don't have, we don't have any information to make those kind of judgments. So for me, it's just, I'm going to take a wait and see attitude and, and the proof is going to be there in a year or two. And we're going to know whether this was a good hire or not a good hire. But for me to sit here or for anyone to sit here and say, Oregon should have done this. Oregon should have done this. That was a terrible hire. They should have gotten this other guy instead. Like, it's just, it's kind of just silly. It's nonsensical, really. Like, we have such a limited, like, we spend, um, hold on one second. Oh, there we go. Sorry, we have, I was plugging in my computer so I didn't die while I was talking. Uh, we, we have, a like, such a limited sample size of information, right? Like, we, we know so little about these guys. So, like a, a five minute wiki search is not enough information for us to have like a completed picture of what these guys are capable of, how they are, what their upside is as a recruiter, what their philosophies are as a coach. Like it takes substantially more time and research than that and access to information that we don't have access to. So, well, I, I look forward to seeing how it plays out. Um, I feel really good about Hampton and Stein. I feel, I feel good about, the guy who's making the hire with Terry. And so I I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do. Well, and it was, it was nice that, you know, coach Stein was in place and was able to be a part of the process of hiring Terry. So it wasn't just Dan Lanning, you know, Dan was able to lean on his offense coordinator and those two were able to sit together and obviously talk about philosophies and make sure things are, are meshing well. And that, and so that's a part of it. He had an OC in place that he felt, you know, comfortable with. And, and I know that coach Stein was involved in the hiring process of coach Terry. So I think that that's great. You know, as for what Doug talked about earlier, that continuity, you know, that's going to help with that element alone right there um, on the offensive side of the ball. And I, I'm with you. My closing thought is I, I haven't really said it so much yet, but I've heard that coach Hampton's like awesome. Like guys are pretty, pretty impressed with him already. And that, you know, this is probably going to turn out to be another, you know, we'll just say like a, a pallage level higher where this guy's probably only around for a couple years and somebody's going to come, come calling with a big defensive coordinator offer. So uh, if that's the case, that means he's going to leave Oregon in a better place than he found it. So that's obviously a good thing as well. Or, or maybe he's our next defensive coordinator. If, if Tosh moves on at some point. Yeah, I could see Tosh making a move back to the NFL. I mean, Clem did it obviously. And I don't think Clem did it because of recruiting. I don't, it, it just like, like uh like andrew said earlier it's bill belichick i mean that guy just if there's somebody to go learn from it's that guy and just with what he's done uh, you know there's i i don't think there's anyone that clem could go work for that would advance his career better and 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 dan lanning is a great coach and all that but bill belichick is you know really at, you know at the at the pinnacle of that profession especially with the particular position that that adrian clem coaches so um that one just made a ton of sense to me as well well and think about the pre-existing relationship there like clem played for belichick for like 12 years like the, those guys go back a long ways that's a relationship that like it's definitely supersedes what landing and clem had too so that has to be considered in this as well I could easily see. Let me put this. I could easily see Clem being Belichick's OC if Bill O'Brien is successful and ends up moving on to a head coaching position, which is probably something he'd like to do again. All right, 
I think that covers this topic pretty well, unless either one of you have any final thoughts on it. No, I think we've done a good job beating it to death. <laughs> Do we, <laughs> at this point, I, I don't think we anticipate any or any further staff openings. Obviously, this one was pretty late in the cycle as is. I think we're pretty well locked and loaded at this point. Would, would you both agree? Yeah, I think the staff is locked in. I think that everyone that was going to have an opportunity to get promoted got promoted and everybody that was going to have an opportunity to take a lateral position at the NFL did that. So I don't know what, what else there would be left. I don't know whose cat that was, but it totally freaked out my cat. Cause he just <laughs> run around. He's like, he's like, where is it? I can hear it. I know it's out there. Yeah, he's just, that, that was here. Yeah. I got a really loud cat. Yeah. D- yeah. Doug, Doug's cat hates him. It's so funny. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, be nice to the cat, cat Dougie. Attack. It's well, it's my wife's cat, and yeah, she attacks me uh, regularly. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the no, cat, to, not the wife. Yeah, or both. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just to finish on that thought, yeah, I think I think Oregon's in a pretty good place from from the coach. Although it is kind of weird, we're seeing a little bit of a trend now of the later coaching cycle, right? I mean, here we are in February. You know, uh, I mean, Mario being Mario, he's looking to fill out half of his staff uh, on offensive side of the ball. Nick Saban's had to do some late, you know, turnover. It's kind of it's just kind of different than usual that we're seeing the coaching movement that normally takes place in December and January now kind of more of a later January and into February, which is is not something that really uh, used to take place. So it's it's a it's another interesting you know, kind of change, if you will, to college football. The recruiting timeline has accelerated. Um, you know, things are just so much different, and this seems to be another byproduct of some of those things as well. Yeah, one other thing, kind of switching gears now, you know, one of the other things that have come up or has continually been in the news is, you know, Pac-12 media deal, realignment, uh, conference expansion, conference, you know, shrinking, all those things, and kind of there's been a lot of stuff out there over the last couple of weeks since we last recorded a lot of it rumors, a lot of it kind of in, you know, reports. Um, I think the biggest kind of domino that has fallen in the new landscape of larger college football, obviously is the news that Oklahoma and Texas will leave the big 12 a year earlier than planned and head to the sec. So they will play one more year in the big 12, this the, the 2023 season, and then they will move to the sec in 2024 which also coincides with the LA schools moving to the big 10 for the same year, 2024 and the college football playoffs expanding to 12 teams also in 2024. So from a larger landscape of college football, it's all changing all at the same time um, after one more season. And and that kind of puts both those conferences at 16 teams. They're both going to move to a most likely a, a three permanent rivals and six rotation rival or games conference schedule nine conference games which will be new for the sec and and then the news that broke yesterday coming out of there is ohio state has canceled their upcoming home and home series with the university of washington which was scheduled for 2024 and 2025 so that is no longer happening ohio state's paying to buy their way out of that um which really comes down to the fact that they don't want to travel to the west coast twice in the same season and they're probably almost certainly going to be traveling to la that year so and they don't need the game right if the if the big 10 and the sec are sitting there with all of their new teams and we're in a 12 team playoffs i think the 
the the teams like Ohio State and Michigan, they don't need to to play a strong out of conference power five game on the road on the West Coast. Like there's no there's no advantage to that for them. None. Yeah. Which I mean, which is why the SAC hasn't done it for years, right? There's really not much advantage for them to play a really tough out of conference game, which is why they usually end up playing like Tennessee Tech or whoever they end up playing. But yeah, a lot of some of the, the bigger schools in the SEC will play big games. Like I think Georgia, I mean, they've had the, the series with Clemson. Um, and then obviously Bama's played some some big series with Florida State, among other teams. Um, but I, I agree generally, like there was no incentive for the bottom half of the SEC to play big non-conference games because it's just going to hurt their ability to get to six wins, right? Yeah, especially when they move to nine conference games, it's actually going to double down on that theory. So if you look at the bottom half of the SEC and they're now they're playing an extra conference game, their their math their bowl math gets a lot tighter. They they need you know they can't go four and four in the SEC and and win two out of conference games. Now if they're going to go four and five in the SEC, they need to win they need to win all of their out of conference games. So I, I expect we'll see that a lot more of those kind of things happen over time um, from both of those conferences is. You know, and you look at Oregon has a future home and home scheduled with Michigan State, and another one with Ohio State, and it'll be interesting to see over time if those end up getting canceled as well. I, I would worry less about the Michigan State series getting canceled, but I think there's a real possibility. It's it's so far in the future anyway. It's ten years from now, but uh, you know, five years from now, six years from now, maybe Ohio State's looking to get out of that series as well because. Hey, they're already going to be traveling to LA three times every four years. So, yeah, we'll, well see what I happens think, there. Yeah, hopefully these will be conference games and we won't have to play them non-con. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be ideal. It certainly seems as though that's going to be on the back burner for a little bit. It sounds like. Yeah, the well, next. Sure. I don't think we're going in the Big Ten anytime before twenty thirty. But those two games are scheduled for twenty thirty two and twenty thirty three. So yeah, we can hope that uh, that maybe we're in the Big Ten at that point as well. But in the yeah. meantime, the the Pac twelve media rights situation, you know, continues to swirl. There's been so much information and counter information and misinformation and conflicting reports put out there. I don't know what or who to believe anymore. If you listen to some people. A deal is imminent. SMU and San Diego State are going to be added. The Pac-12 is going to sign a deal. It could happen, you know, next week. Uh, and you listen to other people, and the bottom has fallen out, and nobody's bidding on the Pac-12, and we're going to be lucky to get twenty million per team. So I don't know. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Yeah, it kind of feels like you know maybe uh, George Klyevkov maybe getting information out there as he wants you know what i mean like information one way information another way just to kind of keep everybody guessing to what he's i hope he's got a rabbit in his hat somewhere because you know if if he's going to it feels like that's the best way to do it right kind of lead everybody in different ways and just not really give anybody a, a firm clue of what's going on uh hopefully he does have a firm clue of what's going on and can kind of surprise us all like i've been impressed with him so far and it's I like it's not his fault. He was put in an unwinnable situation. You know, it's not like this is all his fault. This is him trying to clean up a really bad mess. But um, yeah, I, I it, if you just kind of take a step back and and put passion out of it and 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 put fandom away, you know, the Pac-12 current situation is not ideal. It's not very good at all. You know, the idea of adding SMU and, and San Diego State certainly feels like a Band-Aid on, on a, a fairly small bullet hole at the moment. But 
I mean, I guess if you can slow the bleeding enough down, down enough, you can, you know, potentially come up with, with better options in two years or three years or four years or whatever the case might be. I still think at this point, unless the big's going to invite you in, you, you really, you know, the Pac-12 and Big 12 should get smart and figure out a way to join forces and make, you know, probably the third best conference in in the country but it doesn't look like either of their egos are going to allow for that so well i just think that there's too much bad inventory in both conferences to make that work right like the ideal situation is the the best schools in the pac-12 and the best schools in the big 12 would get together and start a new conference um that's how you would create the most value and that's off the table now yeah the yeah. big 12 has signed their new grant of rights everybody's on board they're not cutting anybody. I think that the, the other options outside of staying in the Pac-12, the only other things in play are some schools joining the Big 12, you know, in Oregon, Washington would be at the top of that want list for, for your market company. Or, you know, is there still an outside shot that the Northwest schools and, and Stanford and Cal could, could some, do some sort of collaboration with the ACC? Um, and I, we haven't heard about that in a long time, but there's been some kind of, some of those things have kind of been renewed of late of this past week. So it's a long, it's the longest of long shots, but you know, that might still be out there as well, which honestly would be a better conference than the big 12 pack 12 combo. Yeah. I mean, my, I would, I would like that. I selfishly kind of like the idea of playing San Diego state because it's driving distance from where I live. But um, (laughs) I, I, I I like big, big 10 is, it would be the best option of the pac 10 staying as 10 and getting a deal. That's a little bit better than the big 12, I think would be option two for me. And just in terms of like preference. Yeah. Um, The ACC deal, if the money is right, would make sense, but the money has to be right. If you're traveling across the country that often. Well, the the one thing I say is, and I I do agree, there's a lot of bad inventory in in both the PAC and the Big 12, but there's bad inventory in the Big 10 and the SEC as well. Maybe not quite as much, but it's still there. The Big 10's propped, obviously, very top-heavy, very top-heavy. SEC is a little bit better balanced than, than – so you start to wonder, is it more about – you know, um, records and inventory of that, or is it just about who's got these TV markets, you know, like who is planted in this huge Houston market, who's planted in this huge LA market and how many television sets do they have? Because it feels like that's at the end of the day, the number one factor in all this. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, that, that is the factor. The problem is that with like merging the, the big 12 and the pac 12 is that you, like it, you're right. Both conferences have a lot of bad inventory. If you add that bad inventory together, it waters it down so much that it makes sense for nobody. Right. So you're right like, back where you started at best. Yeah, exactly. So like the, the situation is basically, okay, is the pack tent for Oregon? And this is my opinion. If like, if I was the commissioner is, is the pack 10 going to pay Oregon, Washington more than everybody else and more than anybody in the big 12 gets. If the answer is yes, you stay put. If the answer is no, you shop with the big 12 and see what they're going to pay. Because ultimately this is a business and and these schools, Oregon and Washington need to be in the best position possible for a potential big 10 invite in 2030. Yeah. So I, I would actually even argue that you don't even have to make as much like I think Oregon and Washington would stay in the Pac-12, even if it's a, it's a slightly less than the Big 12, right? If it's oh, if they're getting so. if they're getting four or five million less, the cost of of moving 
is probably not worth it for that. Oh yeah, yeah. But if it's within if a it's margin, ten million, then yeah, well, it's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I've got stuff I got to get to today. So I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Yeah, I think that sounds great. And we'll be back uh, next Tuesday with our next edition. We'll get back on that regular cadence, as we mentioned earlier, every Tuesday. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, apologies for the inconsistency. Um, we've got it figured out now that where we'll be all to sit down and all three of us be on every episode every week and um, start to break down this roster as we head into the spring, continue to do that. Um, and then follow any recruiting news and, and any news on this Holden situation that unfolds here over the coming weeks. So uh, have a safe weekend. Everybody enjoy themselves and we will talk to you next week.